0: Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. We're coming to you from the December highlights of AJT Highlights podcast. As always, uh, Dr. Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska is here with me as my co-host. And today we have an editorial fellow, um, Dr. Kwan Yao Ho, who's a transplant nephrologist uh, in Singapore, trained there and is in his second year as a faculty there. So we're excited to have both of you here. For We have five articles that we're going to get through and review. Just as always, going through the the table of contents, we will start off with Dr. Ho's two articles. Um, the first one is entitled Machine Learning Supported Interpretation of Kidney Graft, Elementary Lesions in Combination with Clinical Data by Labrif et al. And then the second paper reviewed by Dr. Ho will be IL-2 receptor engineering enhances regulatory T cell function suppressed by Calcineurin inhibitor by HRI et al. Then uh Raz will do paper, a basic science paper, de novo, uh SIX2 activation in human kidneys treated with neonatal kidney stem slash progenitor cells by Arcolino et al. And then I will finish this off with two papers, one on um lung transplant titled Place-Based Heterogeneity and Lung Transplant Recipient Outcomes by Tsuang et al., and then a viewpoint that I'll briefly review um, entitled The 21st Century Cures Act and Psychosocial Electronic Documentation in Solid Organ Transplantation, Potential Harms and Practical Strategies by Winder et al. So, Huan Yao, um, welcome um, from across the world. Um, it's 6 a.m. there in Singapore. We're glad you got up to review these papers, so take
1: it away. Okay, thank you for the kind introduction. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Um, so the first study we're reviewing is uh, machine learning supported interpretation of graph elementary lesions in combination with clinical data. So this is a multi-center European study looking at the development and validation of uh, machine learning algorithms to interpret information on uh, elementary uh, histological lesions such as you know G0 T0 etc. Uh, as described by the Ban criteria, along with some clinical data. And classifying patients based, uh, based on this information, whether or not they had diagnosis of, you know, uh, antibody-mediated rejection, TCM-mediated media rejection, as well as IFTA. Um, so just to provide some background to the study, as we know, the BAN criteria is a system that we use to standardize the reporting and diagnosis of rejection along with other pathologies in uh, kidney allograft uh, histology. So the classification is usually achieved through uh, reviewing the combination of uh, different uh, histological res- uh, lesions and is usually influenced by other factors, such as the clinical history, uh, the essays and other uh, laboratory data, such as um, creatinine proteinuria. Of course, uh, they have been found to have some discrepancies in the diagnosis achieved, even if pathologists or clinicians are provided with the same information, and this can be contributed by a number of reasons. Uh, for example, uh, the system is constantly being evolved. each uh, bank meeting, so it may be challenging to be uh, fully updated on the, uh, on, the, on the system. And also since the uh, um, interpretation is influenced by clinical factors, the experience and level of expertise in each centre and by each uh, individual may um, be different. So therefore it will be potentially useful if there was an automated algorithm that will uh, guide clinicians and help to interpret the, this information in a standardised manner. So the study aims to develop and validate four separate uh, classifiers through supervised machine learning algorithm. So the first was to classify whether or not there was a TCMR. The second one was to classify whether there was ABMR. And the third one was if there was ABMR, whether it was active or active or chronic. And uh, the last one was whether or not there was IFTA. So moving on to the methods. So uh, for the training set, they took uh, data from two European programs, uh, the Biomargin and Rocket cohorts, which were both uh, a multi-center, multi-national cohorts from France, Germany, and Belgium. Uh, The biopsies were read locally uh, and then sent to an independent expert pathologist. If there were discrepancies, then they were educated by uh, three independent expert pathologists. The uh, histological interpretations after they achieved consensus were then sent to a group of four uh, transplant physicians uh, and provided with the uh, clinical context to arrive at a final clinical diagnosis. And this was taken as the uh, final reference diagnosis. So this final reference diagnosis, was then fed to the uh, machine learning algorithm along with data of the uh, elementary um, histological lesions with some basic data such as DSAs, uh, creatinine, and proteinuria at a time of biopsy so uh, and to allow the algorithm to to build um, these uh, automatic classifiers. So they used extreme uh, gradient boosting, which is an ensemble-based method based on decision trees uh, with the XGBoost package. And then they externally validated these classifiers uh, with data from three uh, uh, transplant centers in Belgium, Germany, and France. Um, interestingly, I mean, they, they I've I not seen this, but they have used uh, this thing called the shapely additive, additive uh, explanation methods to graphically show uh, the contribution of each factor. And because the Belgian cohort applied the band rules uh, strictly to achieve their diagnosis. It was used to, as a means to compare the performance of these classifiers, uh, to when the band rules were, uh, applied strictly. So moving on to the results. So in general, these, uh, classifiers had a really excellent, uh, performance with the AOC ROC of more than 0.9, uh, when compared to these diagnoses achieved by these external data sets. In particular, for IFTA, the ROC AOC were uh, more than 0.95 in all three centers. So, uh, when they compared the performance of these classifiers against the strict application of the band criteria, it was found that it, in general, um, the classifiers had, were more sensitive in terms of that diagnosis of ABMR and TCMR uh, than when the, they used the band criteria strictly. They also uh, looked into these gray zones. So they chose two cutoffs where uh, above which you had a highest degree of certainty that the uh, case had, had that particular condition and below these scores, the case uh, didn't, had a high degree of certainty not to have these uh, disease. So anything between these two scores were regarded as the gray zones. So again, um, because the Belgian cohort used the man criteria strictly, the number of uh, gray zone cases were higher uh, in this cohort compared to the French and German cohorts. So they also looked into the factors that contributed to the diagnosis in these uh, gray zone cases. So it was quite interesting because Basically, they could rank the different factors based on uh, its contribution to the final diagnosis. Also, for example, uh, the absence of DSAs or the absence of uh, chronic promulopathy were more important than the absence of uh, glomerulitis and PTC uh, in the diagnosis against uh, ABMR. So they also applied these classifiers to six case-based scenarios. Uh, They were used in a multinational survey And essentially showed that there was 100% concordance with the reference diagnosis. Lastly, they also looked into specific types of cases, uh, such as mixed ABMR and TCMR, as well as uh, DSAs, uh, sorry, uh, ABMR without DSAs. And I think what they showed is that uh, the performance was still okay, but was poorer than sort, sort of like the more simple cases. So I think there are a few points to be made here. So I think the authors did manage to develop these machine learning classifiers, which had excellent concordance with the diagnosis made by specialized pathologists uh, in three separate uh, European transplant centers. And by incorporating clinical factors and using this machine learning algorithm with a final final reference diagnosis that was derived from a strict uh, adjudication process, they were able to train an algorithm uh, that was more sensitive detecting ABMR and TCMR uh, than the strict application of the bank criteria. Um, so again, um, the, the classifier for IFTA had almost perfect concordance uh, when compared to these uh, um, diagnosis from the e- external cohorts. And really it was quite nice that um, this uh, also showed the contributing factors for each the relative importance of each of these contributing factors, which is not always something that we see in the entire studies, Um, So as a result, I think potentially we could use this information and in turn help us uh, potentially refine uh, the band criteria further. There were some limitations. Uh, For example, the authors did explain how the characteristics of the training set could have contributed to the performance of these classifiers. For example, there were not that many V lesions in the uh, training sets, so therefore the V criterion was not regarded as an important factor for both the ABMR as well as the TCMR classifiers. Um, so the authors had to program a warning for cases with isolated B lesions that were not diagno- diagnosed as rejection, so that the user can uh, interrogate the data with greater caution. There were also not enough cases in the training sets to develop classifiers for diagnosis such as BK and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And again, the classifiers had poorer performance for more complex cases such as uh, concomitant, ABMR, and TCMR. But uh, I think it was, all all was a very interesting study uh, there are many salient details that I think is difficult to summarize in a podcast. So I do encourage the listeners to have a greater uh, look at the article in greater detail. Yeah, I wonder if uh, Ross and Josh have any comments.
2: Well, I think you did a great summary of a of a complicated paper, and kudos to you and kudos to the authors showing um, sort of a novel way of analyzing, you know, bi- biopsy data with the integration of clinical. Diagnosis. So I I think one important factor of this paper that's different is it's just not an algorithm based on histology, which is a bunch of papers being written and published now. So it does incorporate the sort of clinical expertise and the clinical ability to reflect on a, a pattern that you see histologically in a diagnosis a pathologist gives you, but also integrating the clinical course of that individual. You know, I just think it's interesting to see where this is going to evolve. And it would be it would be interesting if there is a way to do this ethically is to see, you know, or, you know, evaluate, you know, was it because it was so correct? Did that would that have had any impact on clinical care? It's hard to know that like it's so correct you'd say, well, and maybe the, and maybe it helped reduce errors. And again, I don't think the intent is, well, I don't know what their intent is exactly, but I'm sure Martin Mason doesn't want to get rid of people. He, but he's probably you know, thinking, is there an efficient way to add this to increase experience? One of my biggest concerns in training right now in fellowship is the disparity in expertise and experience based on transplant volumes that may be different. The experience of the clinicians, like when I'm gone, you know that's like fifty years of experience. Well, not fifty, but close to fifty years of experience. And and the more you see, I think it's important. So this may be an important tool to help less experienced clinicians. But ultimately, if the computer tells you this is rejection and you're not sure, you're going to have to decide ultimately how to take care of the patient. And that's where I think it's sort of an interesting business right now because
0: this was this was actually a. Sort of a topic at the the Banff meeting in September. Right. In terms where I think you were sick, we couldn't come. The uh, actually it was not the clinical data it was the transcriptome on the on the biopsy and incorporating that with the um, histology to sort of see if they could be complementary to each other. You wonder when that's going to be thrown in to this analysis where you have clinical data plus transcript transcriptomics plus biopsy histology. Is it? Better than any of those three alone. I mean, this is all. Uh, this was this is in reference to to Phil Halloran's MMDX platform if, across all organs. So, but yeah, I I, I like more. Uh, you know, the question is whether the additional data outside of the biopsy is is going to be really get you there to more of the answer.
2: And and I would say yes because we know Josh. And maybe, you know, Quan Yeo that when you do a clinical study and you have a central pathologist, how frequent it is the central person says, nah, no rejection. And the mm-hmm. local, you know, you're doing a biopsy for cause in a clinical study, for example, and you do it and you see borderline and you treat them, whatever, and you report it as an adverse event or SAE. And how many times the central pathologist says no, yeah. or you know, because they're doing it in a void. They're just seeing... Things and I think when when the pathologist has access to you know to our electronic health record to the biopsy information we provide it helps them put it in a context so that they sort of say hey this is what I'm going to be looking for so I do think there's a human component there and it would have been interesting I, I looked at their methods and didn't see how they arrived at their own expert diagnosis. there were four experts and who you know who they were and how they arrived. And also one common at Banff is, you know, more experienced pathologists tend to score one way than less experienced. I think just like in clinical medicine, you know, you're, you err more on the side of including things to be sure you don't miss something. Whereas as you get more experienced, you're more confident and say, ah, it's probably not that. So we're just going to go in this direction, but really cool paper.
0: All right, let's move on to the next one, the IL-2. I thought this one was really interesting.
2: Yeah, so it was really uh,
1: interesting and innovative study. Uh, So we move on from machine learning to cell engineering. So uh, it's a preclinical study involving the use of a mouse model. So the premise of the study is to test uh, T regulatory cells that have been engineered to express a modified form of the IL-2 receptor called ortho-IL-2 receptors. Uh, these receptors have been found to selectively bind to its corresponding form of the IL-2 cytokine called auto-IL-2. And the overall goal was to use this as a strategy to mitigate the dysfunction of T-Rex caused by uh, calcineurin inhibitors. So of course, we know that cellular therapy is an exciting frontier in transplantation. So several groups have uh, used uh, t rex cells to induce uh, transplant uh, tolerance with uh, uh, promising pr- uh, early clinical results. Uh, However, as we know, the calcium inhibitors that we use uh, commonly for maintenance immune suppression inhibits all forms of T-cells, including T-Rex, which can then negatively affect its intended uh, immunomodulatory effects. So since the calcium inhibitors suppresses T-cells via a pathway that involves the suppression of IL-2, we can potentially use IL-2 as a means to overcome this inhibition. However, even at low dose, IL-2 has been found to activate, you know, uh. NK cells, T helper cells, which can then have uh, undesirable effects, such as increasing the risk of rejection. So the same group has published a paper in Science and has shown that they were able to engineer a mutant form of IL-2 cytokine called Auto-IL-2 that interacts with its corresponding form of IL-2 receptor called Auto-IL-2 receptor at 100 times stronger compared to the wild-type IL-2 receptor. And therefore the group transduced uh, these IL-2 receptors into T regulatory cells, which we will now refer to as auto T-rex and uh, tested if they can be selectively activated uh, by these auto IL-2 cytokines and therefore help to overcome the dysfunction of uh, T-rex that's caused by uh, CNIs. So uh, I'll present the methods and the results of the study uh, together. So basically it was based on a mouse model. The T-rex were isolated and expanded from a specific mouse model which enabled the enrichment of highly pure T-Rex. Then the T-Rex were then uh, uh, transduced uh, with these um, auto-2 IL-2 receptors using a gamma uh, retroviral vector. And they tested these T-Rex in two ways. The first was an in vitro proliferation assay. So they uh, added these T-Rex together with uh, conventional naive T-cells and they exposed them to either bio-type IL-2 cytokine, auto-IL-2, or PBS as a control. With and without um in the um, model. So, not surprisingly, uh, tacrolimus suppressed the numbers of both conventional T cells and auto T rex. Uh, they did show that the wild type IL2 cytokine uh, increased the numbers of both the conventional T cells and auto T rex, but not back to the level at which if the T cells were not exposed to the uh Importantly, the wild type IL2 uh cytokine uh, stimulated conventional T cells to a higher degree than auto-T-rex. And they also showed that the auto-2 IL2, IL-2 cytokine increased auto-T-rex but not conventional T cells. And uh, I think importantly the uh, proportion of auto-T-Rex was highest when it was stimulated by auto-IL2 at, at the same time exposed to tacholymus. So I think essentially the summation of all these uh, results showed that the auto IL2 cytokine did indeed um, selectively stimulate these auto T-rex and yeah. So the second way they tested the auto T-rex in this study was through a bone marrow and heart transplant mouse model. So briefly the mice were subjected to total body irradiation. Then the mice received uh, auto T-rex along with bone marrow cells from a different uh, donor mouse together with uh, anti-CD40 ligand antibody. And then the heart was transplanted two to three days later. The mice were also given 14 days of tacrolimus, So this essentially created a mouse with uh, a mixed chimerism as well as a heart transplant, which can be monitored. And they administered either auto, 2, uh, IL, auto IL-2 or PBS as a control for 14 days and followed up the mice for up to 180 days. So similarly, they found that uh, auto IL-2 increased the proportion of these auto T-rex. And importantly, all the mice which received uh, auto IL-2 Managed to maintain the mixed chimerism and sustain their heart transplants until the end of follow-up, whereas in the control group uh, who only received PBS, the two out of mice lost their donor-specific um, chimerism and five of them lost their heart transplants. So moving on to the discussion points, I think the authors did uh, achieve their aims and showed that these uh, engineered T Rex, uh, which expressed uh, auto two il two receptors, were able to they were able to stimulate them selectively both in the in vitro and in vivo settings by stimulating them with IL-2, or auto-IL-2, and, and this over, overcame the dysfunction caused by tecronymus. So, I mean, of course, there are some limitations in the study. This is a pre-clinical study with a mouse model, and the, the authors did comment that the transduction rate of the T-Rex uh, in this study was low, so they had to increase the number of cells that are transferred into the mice by, by about three times. So this did increase the rate of mixed chimerism, even in the PBS control group, um, in the mouse model, they also did not have a wild-type IL-2 arm, or they did not have an arm where they did not uh, administer tacrolimus to the mice. So uh, they were not able to show a comparison between uh, these different combinations together. But, but all in all, a very, very interesting and innovative study, in my opinion. Um, I think it uh, uh, highlighted a potential useful approach in the use of cellular therapies. I mean, of course, there are studies looking at you know avoiding CNIs altogether, for example, using mTORs in, in such studies so that we can avoid this problem altogether. Uh, of course, if we can selectively um, stimulate um, you know, cell products uh, that we uh, administer to patients, there, there are many potential useful applications. So for example, we can monitor the, the numbers of these cells and then administer these uh, IL-2, uh, auto-IL-2 um, cytokines without um, causing problems to the rest of the patient. And of course, there may be situations where we cannot uh, practically avoid or withdraw uh, CNIs. Uh, I think one um, important question that I guess is unanswered is that since these um, engineered auto IL-2 uh, receptors and cytokines are uh, different from the uh, wild type uh, versions uh, molecularly, whether for example in humans they will be immunogenic and therefore be destroyed by the recipient's immune system and therefore limiting its application. Uh, but the authors did comment that uh, there were only very few um, amino acid substitutions and the products will be uh, expected to have a low immunogenicity. I think the details of how they modified this um, IL-2 receptors can be um, seen in in their science article, which is really quite interesting. So I I wonder if uh, Josh and uh, Ross have any other comments?
2: I thought it was an interesting approach and not one that I would have thought of, but I guess in this day of cellular engineering and CAR-T regs, this is just sort of the kinds of things we're going to start seeing more and more frequently. And I gather that, you know, it would be a companion therapy. You'd be giving T regs and IL two and, and the devil is going to be in the details. I wasn't so sure. I wasn't so worried about the immunogenic activity of the ortho IL two as I was, was how often are you going to need to get these cells? You know, the timing of the cells in the infusions important. I mean, certainly for tolerance and non-human primate groups are looking at CAR T therapy. Party in, regs in their um, introduction. So I, I, I think it's interesting and, and you know, uh, the direction I think transplant is continuing to head into more of a, an approach that oncology, you know, hematologic malignancy groups are very comfortable with and the ability to get these kinds of cells engineered and prepared is going to be relatively become more simple because we'll be working with our oncology partners to get that done.
0: While this is a mouse model, I think the the I agree that the interesting aspects are that this can enhance Tregs despite being on calcineurin inhibitors. So, which you know is really important for most of the organ transplant populations that are kind of stuck on them in terms of inducing tolerance or maybe even being able to minimize or withdraw calcineurin inhibitors as an approach. And um, also the the engineering to. Avoid expansion of conventional T cells is really important because I know IL-2 has had some issues with in both autoimmune and alloimmune and, and stimulating not only Tregs, but also bad effector cells too, or the potential there. So kind of reminds me of, um, IL-2 mutane. Yeah it, yeah. it has that, it's a modified, um, IL-2 that only, that, that, uh, preferentially expands Tregs and not effector cells. So, kind of um makes a lot of sense to do this sort of in vitro too without having to ex- exogenously expand tregs and reinfuse them which is always expensive and challenging so i think it's exciting but obviously human studies are probably the next step of course so <laughs> something it, in well, works in mice yeah or, some, right, or something between. in between all right well Thank you, Kwan Yao. Um, Roz, do you want to- um, Yeah, let, let's keep yours? moving
2: because we've got a few more papers. So I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can. Uh, the next paper is by Fanny Arcolino in the Leuven uh, lab of Dr. Elena Levchenko. They're, they're a nephrology uh, investigative group interested in reparative medicine, genetic kidney disease. Um, and this study, will, in a small study of human kidneys that were discarded uh, they evaluate the use of this neonatal kidney stem cell progenitor cell that they have identified in order to assess the effect of potentially repairing these grafts and, and improving donor quality. So it's a, a major unmet need. We know the discard rates continue to grow and, and that's at least in kidney alone. And this group identified several years ago that in neonatal urine, they could isolate what they call these kidney progenitor stem cells, these cells. Are very unique because they're only available at a certain time in development. Um, by 34 weeks in humans, the kidneys are completely formed. But you can, you can. They were able to identify these cells in preterm infant urine. They have an endogenous, unique ex- transcription factor called Six two or SIX two that's active in the kidney mesenchymal cells. And in a couple, in a prior study, they were able to show that these cells can actually differentiate and cause differentiation to stromal cells, nephron progenitors, uh, podocytes, and that these cells are somewhat mesenchymal-like. And in an in vitro model of kidney tubular injury using cisplatinum, these cells, when co-incubated, could reduce that injury. So needless to say, and I'll cut to the chase, that this was a small study of six total discarded kidneys. They were discarded uh, either for pro- for some, I think, predominantly structural issues as opposed to cold time although the cold time as shown in table 1 was fairly significant these kidneys were all subjected to normothermic perfusion so i'm going to say normothermic perfusion again for the audience so that they know that that is a different way most people do you know can use cold or reduced temperature perfusion but normothermic may actually be um, have its own benefits but needless to say three of the kidneys were perfused with about 10 million of these cells Prior to normothermic perfusion, and they were compared to the non-cell-infused normothermic perfusion kidneys, and at intervals up to six hours, there were biopsies done, urine and perfusate was collected. So with small numbers, it's important to point out that there's variability in the demographics, and there's one donor in particular who was discarded in the treatment group of cells that had, was significantly younger, shorter cold time, and had a, small, a lower creatinine. And, and when you look at these figures, there is wide variation in the standard errors Needless to say, the cell infusions didn't really have a significant impact on urine output or changes in renal blood flow. I think what was most important is identified in this paper is that they were able to track these cells. They labeled them with an immunofluorescent probe. They identified them initially in the cortex and by six hours saw them in the medulla. So they were moving around and being perfused through, uh, although many of the six-hour cells were probably fragments and what they noted is that in, in, in all three kidneys receiving these cells, that there was an induction in proximal tube epithelial cell expression of this transcription factor, which has never been shown apparently in adult proximal tube epithelial cells ever. And um and and they do confocal imaging and you could argue a little about it, but it, it does look like there is proximal tube epithelial specific uh, expression of this. It's not overlay of a fragmented um. Uh, At uh, um, stem cell. They also identified in in, normothermic perfusion increases proliferation of proximal epithelial cells, which we expect. And importantly, more than half of the 6-2 express cells also showed evidence of uh, proliferation. And then they also saw some um, markers of what they called 2-epithelial cell regeneration increases in SOX9, F1, and VEGF that were associated with the cell infusion. I hate to say statistically significant, but they were statistically significant. And so it was three compared to three. And they also show sort of lower levels of immune profiles like IL one beta, TNF alpha and IL six, suggesting that the cells themselves being infused have some immunomodulatory effect on the kidney. And finally, they go on to show in both in vitro, primarily through in vitro uh, studies that endolamine 2,3 dioxygenase, which is an important felt to be an important pathway in kidney injury. Is playing a role through these cells. So these cells are, are activating it. And when they put an inhibitor in, they can alter the function. They alter the profile in vitro. And when they use these cells in culture and co-culture with proximal tube epithelial cells. And another interesting experiment, when they do mixed lymphocyte responses in with human cells, the addition of these um, stem cells uh, in culture has a dose dependent suppression in mixed lymphocyte response. So, uh, you know, and and I think the in vitro studies are important because they identify that the co-culture of these cells upregulated 6-2, an important missing control in vivo was the app, you know, maybe this just happened if you infuse anything, any kind of cell, and they don't, they don't show that, but they do show in vitro that if they add mesenchymal stem cells, for example, in vitro to their proximal tube epithelial cells under hypoxic conditions that they don't induce 6-2. So the 6-2 is only induced when these kidney progenitors are there. And and unfortunately, besides the notion that, you know, the the IDO activation is important, they don't really tell you much more like, how does that happen and why is it induced? So I think it's sort of a clever, interesting notion about using, again, it's a demonstration and, and really sort of a proof of concept that one, they could infuse these cells and coupled with normothermic perfusion that preliminarily there is an immune profile that's different than in the non-cell perfused kidneys. Again, these were all due to go to the garbage can and, and they were able to keep them pumped with decent blood flow and decent urine output for hours. Although I'm not sure that that was extended by the cells. I think the goal of having these cells present is just sort of change the actual Reparative profile of some of these uh, groups. So what are some of the limitations before you all go out and put stock in uh, the Levchenko lab, which I, you know, I'm sure they'd be happy for some uh, additional financial support. But again, it's very hard to draw Super strong conclusions when the when the group size is three and three, and they do have scatter plots under the means, and you can see there's some wide variation. I think having an infused different kind of cell would have been more, even more convincing for someone like me in you know ex vivo perfusion with some other kind of cell showing that this activation is really happening. I'll be honest, I I don't know if it hasn't been reported as upregulated because people haven't looked. And, and we have had people that have done single cell sequencing during perfusion, but haven't mentioned it. And again, I think the immunohistochemistry seems to be, to me, convincing from the, from the confocal. So I do think that this there is something going on. And you know, whether this does, so I guess there's two questions. One, can you modify the repair process of a kidney that's not doing well? And this adds some hope to that. And two, can you, can you do that and also make it less immunogenic? And that was one of their conclusions is that they can alter the profile. And we all know that, you know, ischemia and reperfusion, two different processes can upregulate and make kidney activate innate immunity and thereby alloimmunity by crosstalk, And maybe this is one way to sort of kill two birds with one stone. So overall, an interesting manuscript kind of novel processes and and something that, you know, we look forward to seeing further development on.
0: Yeah, really interesting study. Um, I think maybe with, I don't have a whole lot of comments. I think you did a great summary of it. Anything, uh, Quan Yao, um, you have to comment on this study or, or I can move on to the next one? Okay. (laughs) Pretty complex. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have two studies to review. The first one is called Place-Based Heterogeneity and Lung Transplant Recipient Outcomes by Wayne Swang and and Jesse Schultz Group at Cleveland Clinic. This study was uh, conducted very similarly to previous studies in kidney and liver transplant and analyzing place where a recipient lives and the correlation with that and their outcomes um, following an organ transplant. As we know that in liver and kidney transplant, there, there have been studies that have shown that recipients from socioeconomically vulnerable populations and those with higher air pollution and lower life expectancy in relation to the county they live in increases their risk of Rejection and death after an organ transplant. And so the hypothesis here was that this would be similar in lung transplant. And there was a, also a specific focus here on the particles, air particles maybe being associated with some worse outcomes and, and trying to separate that from the socioeconomic factors. Um, and so in this group used the SRTR as most of these studies have used. But they combine the srtr data with some other uh, data sources to get at more granular level data, such as this county health rankings, which um, would provide some of the information on the um the vulnerability risk that they had used previously in their kidney, liver and kidney and liver studies. And this vulnerability risk includes many factors that are related to Socioeconomic status and things like obesity and, 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 um, diabetes, et cetera. And you can calculate this from each county and correlate this with, um, each of these recipients outcomes. And the, the things that they looked at were hospital readmission, treated lung rejection and post transplant graft survival. They did a multivariate model of that from SRTR, a risk adjustment model for post-transplant mortality and some of the other outcomes. So including lots of clinical variables alongside this vulnerability risk. And also um, forgot to mention they used um this US Environmental Protection Agency air quality system uh, assessment, sort of a local assessment of the air quality in each of these counties to um correlate that with with clinical outcomes and particularly and make sense more in lung transplant than other transplants as more of a direct correlation with allograft injury and dysfunction and and potentially mortality. So they looked at basically 10 years of SRTR data, I think in the 2010s of uh, over 18,000 patients, most of them having fibrotic lung disease, most of them bilateral lung transplant. They do go through the the correlation between kind of the vulnerable populations and what their characteristic looks like and not not surprisingly um there was a higher percentage of african american patient population in the mo- most vulnerable quartiles and sort of interestingly the the hispanic population was the the opposite where actually most of the population was from the um least vulnerable areas and they they were hypothesizing that this might be a problem with just under referral of Hispanic patients in, in the most vulnerable uh, counties, but nevertheless, they did find a number of correlations between, well, first, so readmission uh, during the first post-transplant year in an adjusted analysis, those with the highest VR, which is um, this uh, vulnerability uh, risk score, were more likely to be readmitted. And then they looked at the local life expectancy of the county And for every five-year increase in expectancy, recipients were 10% less likely to be readmitted. Or you could flip it around and say, for every five-year decrease, they were uh, 10% more likely to be readmitted. Then lung rejection, there was a correlation also with the vulnerability uh, risk with lung rejection and also local life expectancy and also the particulate matter. There's a 23% higher risk of rejection for every... Five microgram meters cubed increase in this PM 2.5, which is a particulate matter estimate. The one thing they did not find was any correlation with any of these variables and survival. So most of this was morbidity, which is readmission and rejection, lung transplant rejection correlating with this vulnerability risk, you know, bad, bad air or the air environment, um, and lower life expectancy. So, None of these are again surprising. They just had not done this in lung transplant before. And it goes along with just the the geographic disparities. Um obviously they couldn't get on a real, real granular level to look at what is exactly going on in these counties and these specific patient environment is sort of a limitation. But of course, how do we how does this get fixed? Which is, you know, just like in other organ transplants to try to have more sp- personalized Focus on patients from a higher vulnerability area or a area known to have sort of worse overall health outcomes. To try to um, pay more attention to this patient population in terms of their their risks of of post transplant morbidity, being readmitted, um, having rejection, and obviously again considering them sort of a higher risk population for more targeted interventions. Almost like uh, what we do in um sort of a non-adherent population or, or or patient populations that are have lower adherence to have targeted intervention. So again, nice to show this in lung. I think the correlation with the rejection and the air particle, again, whether that is direct correlation or indirect based on you know their socioeconomic factors, not not quite clear, but interesting study. I don't know if either of you have comments before I finish off quickly with the last one.
2: Um, I'm impressed with the low levels of rejection in the first year in this population. I wasn't realized. I I mean, I
0: thought 7% or something. Yeah.
2: um, Well, the treated rejection in the first year is like 17%, but admission rejection during transplant hospitalization is about 6%. But again, the biggest disparity is when you go from the very, very low risk to the very, very high risk. You know, when you look across the groups, it doesn't look as impressive as you say zero to 11 and the 30 to 40. And I guess what I don't know is are the 30 to 40 risk patients really localized in one particular center? Are they spread out? Would there be a way that we could implement from a practical perspective, you know, Utilizing this, or maybe they're spread across the U.S. um, And you have, you should think about this to maybe enhance follow-up, enhance um, proactively adherence to therapy. You know, financial opportunity to access medications, rehab therapy, that kind of thing. It's it's really, yeah, I agree with you. I know in the in the lung, we haven't seen this before, so it's exciting. And none of us are lung people, so.
0: We're probably oh, you were uh, you were looking at rejection within the first year. I was. There yeah, was also a marker of on, yeah. Dischar- on yeah, prior to discharge.
2: Yeah, but also maybe too. yeah, and and also linking it to late graft failure. But their yeah. graft failure rates were very similar. It was shocking.
0: But you can so, sort of see here that there's a big jump up from treated rejection during hospitalization, and then the one year and I think year. that that gap seems to sort of widen with the vulnerability risk increasing. Meaning mm-hmm. there is, you know, they're going home. They're there's an issue there, probably with um, maybe again local socioeconomic factors um, adhering access to knows? therapy access. Right, right. Yeah, so
2: very interesting. April.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they had to do this. Uh, it's just one of these. You you wonder if there could be a some type of multi-center or multi-organ uh, grant or u one or some kind of intervention because you're seeing the same thing in all of the transplant populations that it is probably. Not the similar factors are going on, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, across organs, not really that specific to just because you see the same exact data. So Mm -hmm. really needs to be addressed. Okay. So last paper is a viewpoint that I I found really interesting. Gerald Winder and Eric Clifton, who are in the psychiatry, surgery and neurology at uh, University of Michigan, and really, it's a viewpoint on the 21st Century Cures Act, which, if any of you remember, it was the time period where uh, the the, the um, U.S. House of Representatives passed this act, which allowed patients to have access to their electronic health inter, uh, information, uh, meaning they could read our notes, essentially, after, right after we signed them and can see exactly what was written about them. And I think, you know, the, they, they start off by saying that most physicians support this as a, as a good idea, that it improves care quality and safety, increases patient satisfaction. They can look to see, you know, uh, more of what are the direct recommendations are. And, of course, we've had to kind of modify, I think, in a way, our notes to make them a little more uh, understanding of for patients and knowing that they may be looking at our notes to be careful not to include anything that could be harmful or misinterpreted. So I think this here has not been looked at, though, in organ transplant and particularly in the psychosocial aspect where we know that in all of organ transplant, there's can be significant psychosocial issues uh, related to substance use or adherence or, you know, certain behaviors in this population, but also that you know, a good percentage are are just getting a psychosocial evaluation as part of the evaluation. And knowing that this will be out there and available for patients to look at, the clear concern is that there could be um, things written about patients that could be potentially harmful to patients or stir up, you know, their kind of emotions or, uh, or bring up new things that were pointed out by the psychiatrist that could be perceived as you know detrimental. On the other side, concealing this information may be harmful by increasing the stigma of psychiatric disorders. And so it's sort of this balance on how to um, put this into an assessment note that really tells the the story of, of the of the provider's assessment, the, the psychosocial provider, without writing things that could be damaging to the patient if they read it. They show this figure one, which shows all these different plausible potential harm mechanisms related to uh, this process, um, and what the, the patients might, um, actually take out of it in terms of, you know, some negative aspects, meaning increased mistrust, uh, delayed appointments, decreased adherence, um, distrust in, you know, the clinician, the, the patient and provider relationship. And so really this was trying to highlight this because we certainly see this especially in our liver transplant population but of course all the other populations have there is a higher prevalence of psychiatric disorders in the in the transplant referral patient population and this viewpoint puts out a really nice table uh, it's table 1 that that I think we all should look at even if we're um not you know a psychiatrist or social worker um I know myself, we, I put in a lot of information about this, especially with alcohol use disorder and other drug use disorder when I'm, when I have my uh, assessment of patients on their, on their transplant referral. And, um, they basically go through, um, some different guidelines, like be respectful, include an appropriate amount of detail, highlight the strengths of the, the patients, psychosocial strengths and their family strengths, um, being, being kind of transparent, being writing things down that you discussed with the patient uh, directly, so that there are no surprises, and have it be a more of a collaborative note in a way, or, or an assessment, so that the patients, when reading them, will understand, won't be surprised, but also can have some guide, some guidance there as to what to do to um, improve their candidacy or or get them to that ability to be transplanted and. And so um, and then there's a lot of different bullet points here that I thought were really, um, really helpful to look at. And I, I sent. I learned a lot from just reviewing this and just remembering in, in my notes to kind of think about this, that anything written down is is free for the patients to look at. And it really should be helpful to them and not harmful. So I encourage, uh, yeah, and this is just a viewpoint, but I think it was chosen because this is a, a sensitive topic and I'm glad somebody wrote about this. Because I, I I think it's it's really important.
2: I'm glad that you presented you this because I overlooked this paper and um now I'm looking at it and saying, Oh, you terrible girl. I <laughs> was trying to figure out the connection and then I realized it was open access to the EHR. Yeah. I think yeah. that the the table is fantastic. It's it's not just psychosocial notes. it's all the judgmental yeah, all of things us. we yeah. sometimes put in a note and the things we imply. And I and I think in particular. That I think the reason I've always gotten out of trouble is that I've always tried to be very transparent. As you know, I'm a straight talker, and I always try to say that to the patient: Look, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your behavior, and 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 they can get mad sometimes. It backfires, but I try to make sure that what I say in the room is what is in the note. And I also have been found found value from Vanita Kumar, who says, "Well, how do you know that they heard you?" how do you have them play it back? And so I've gotten into this whole thing of saying, so tell me, what did I just say? What did you hear I said? What are, and what's one important point of what I said? And you'd be surprised at how people are so overwhelmed, so much going on that sometimes we have to do the play it back. And sometimes you end up in the room for an hour and you're like, people say, why are you so in there so long? Because I think this is complex. And uh, I thought this is a great paper. As soon as, uh, I guess the embargo has been lifted but I'll wait till December 1st to um send it to our team because I think this is such a lovely it's just a really good thoughtful paper and Yeah. Um,
0: no, I, I think it's um it's really instructive and I mean even simple things like not using some terminal old terminology like alcoholic I mean I I've, know. I've gone and away I'm from terrible.
2: That. I'm terrible about it yeah. with alcoholism. I'm um I keep having to use AUD, you know, alcohol use disorder, and remind myself in my notes yeah. to do that.
0: But I mean, it, it they give a lot of um, really good pearls here to 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 follow and think about. And again, the the point is, it should be helpful to the. You should assume that they're looking at it, and maybe they you should encourage patients to look at it because it'll it it really it should be a col- kind of a collaborative document in a way. That's the whole idea. And that outlines their treatment plan. And, um, it can be put in ways that are understandable to them and, and that, that this table kind of goes through on how to do that best. Uh, Kwan Yao, you were about to say something.
1: I, I think, um, I mean, certainly, uh, we, we, we have, um, uh, these similar, uh, uh, laws in, in Singapore. And I think over the past few years, uh, there have been quite a bit of reforms in terms of the laws and the policies to, uh, govern, um, um, you know, uh, electronic medical records and to protect the privacy of patients and, you know, assigning the ownership of the data. I guess for the, in the context of transplant, uh, really another thing I was thinking of is in terms of the donor uh, privacy, because I think yeah. sometimes in the recipient notes, we, we do make some comments or notes about characteristic of the donors or maybe for some reason they withdrew, um, yeah, their desire to donate, um, um, that there's not really related to medical reasons so i guess in our local context we have to be extra careful uh sure if they, they have access direct access to the medical records
0: yeah absolutely you need to make sure we're compliant with confidentiality and and it's really about them and not anybody else well great those are great papers um i know we went a little long but i thought they were all important and Thank you, Kwan Yao from Singapore. Thanks for getting up early. Thank you, Raz. And our next one will be in the new year in January of 2023. So we'll see you then.
2: And I guess go Wolverines.
0: Yes, go blue. All right. All right, see you guys. They'll probably cut that out. (laughs) Yeah. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.